beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. All right. Well, good morning and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm Michael Benner, and we're going to continue with our discussion of the wisdom traditions of the world, otherwise known as mysticism, though as I mentioned briefly last week, Buddhism is an example of a wisdom tradition that probably is not considered part of mysticism. But all of these schools and branches of philosophy obviously have their distinctions, their differences. We're looking at a a larger uh, conceptual view and an overarching concept of what the wisdom traditions are. And uh, again, mysticism is a pretty good synonym for wisdom traditions. It's a school of philosophy, as we discussed last week, that um, emphasizes personal experience and the ecstatic states of deep relaxation and profound peace. That's where awareness is expanded, so-called higher consciousness, where we have a much more profound insight and understanding. You're much more likely in a deeply relaxed, meditative, or contemplative state to have those revelations, those little epiphanies, the aha illumination, maybe you know it that way, of, uh, you know, that sudden sudden burst of awareness, like, oh my God. Uh, I love the phrase that the writer Joseph Chilton Pierce used when he wrote Cracking the Cosmic Egg, which was thoughts that arrive full-blown. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Thoughts that arrive full-blown, they just (laughs) burst into your awareness, already conceived, already figured out, so to speak, better said, already realized, as if on some other level, and then they burst into awareness like a, uh, a flash of light, of enlightenment, of illumination. And uh, sometimes it's quite uh, thunderous, like lightning, and uh, lid lifting, just uh, a complete, (laughs) the top of your head blows off. Sometimes, you know, the archetype of the light bulb coming on, and suddenly you see what you had not seen. It was there all along, you just didn't see it. Sometimes it's the dawning of an idea. The realization, the epiphany, the illumination comes up slowly like a sunrise. And you, oh, wait a minute, hold on. (laughs) I'm starting to see what you're talking about, Uh, an awareness that apparently was within me on some unconscious level, but only now, due to this deep relaxation, the calming of the waters, so to speak, uh, only when the mind is undisturbed, like a glass lake, 
Are you able to see deeply into it, as well as what's reflected on the surface? And this in uh, many traditions is called Vipassana. Well, the Buddhist tradition primarily is called Vipassana, with a V like Victor, Vipassana. And sometimes it's just called, especially in the West, insight meditation. So we could also use the word intuition, which is very different than instinct, something we've talked about in the past. Uh, instinct is really what to avoid, oh no. Uh, it's based at the root of the spine, the, the root chakra. Whereas intuition is heart-based, isn't it? That's, oh boy, that's what to move toward. People use these terms interchangeably, but they really are polarities of the so-called gut feeling. That's really the language of emotions and the portal to spirituality. So having quickly delineated last week the different mystery schools, from Rosicrucianism to Gnosticism, we talked about theosophy a little bit and anthroposophy, and um, again, Taoism and, and Buddhism, and the mystical traditions in Christianity should not be overlooked. They're really not limited to uh, Rosicrucianism or Freemasonry, but Judeo-Christian traditions have their mystical schools, their mystery schools as well. It's often these devoted priests and nuns who were targeted during the Inquisition, which is ongoing, by the way. The Catholic Church still has an office of Inquisition. They just haven't burned any witches recently or put any believers on the rack to torture them. And again, one of the primary differences with mysticism as compared to organized religion is that there's no one right way to look at things. We're encouraged to emphasize experience. You read all the books, you read good literature, the scriptures and the non-holy but personal development, spiritual development literature. You'd be a good reader. Look for diverse and antagonistic books. The ones that contrast can teach you as much or more as the, the ones that reinforce and agree. Logic is very important. You don't see that in organized religion. An emphasis on critical thinking. But in addition to the reading and the critical thinking, there is this emphasis on personal experience. And that's why prayer and meditation and uh, the whole idea of these blissful, deeply peaceful, profound, loving, uh, even ecstatic states are emphasized. Having said that, let's do our opening meditation, and we'll see where we go with that. Put ourselves in the right frame of mind, open up our hearts, and our willingness to be mindful in the moment, and then we'll come back with today's instruction. And of course, uh, about an hour from now, five or ten minutes after noon, California time, we'll do some Q&A. So, sit up straight, get balanced and centered, think of yourself as sitting straight but not rigid. You want your head over your shoulders, shoulders back, your torso sitting nicely balanced above your hips. Take a deep breath, uh, maybe a little stretch, <laughs> like waking up, feeling better and better. 
Okay, so uh, as promised, let's look at the wisdom traditions of the world and the basic suppositions. This is the uh, document that we shared last week, and if you were not able to be here or if you're listening to the audio podcast, uh, you're not seeing anything, of course. But here, those of us who are here live or watching the YouTube video, you'll see in this first paragraph here the list we went over last week. That's as far as we got. We spent 35 minutes on that first paragraph. And I think we read down just a little below that. So let's begin with the uh, line that says, some of the basic principles of the ageless wisdom include, and we'll work our way down through this bullet point list. Now, again, these are principles, or as I described them in the uh, newsletter yesterday, suppositions. If you're not familiar with the word, certainly know the word suppose. Well, I don't know. I suppose <laughs> uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the root verb in supposition. Supposition would be the noun. A supposition is something you suppose, uh, but you're uncertain of. And in matters of spirit and spirituality, and even to a large extent, psychology and philosophy, we're always dealing with uh, unprovable uh, uh, principles or tenets. Scientific method is difficult to apply. Empirical science uh, doesn't really apply to the invisible and the unseen. Um, the instrument we use to measure spirit is our own consciousness. But there are agreements, there are suppositions, there are precepts or ideas that these mystery traditions share, again, above and beyond organized religion and the institutions of religion. So let's go through some of them. The first one, I think, in no particular order, maybe there's something of an order here, but this is really not linear. The first bullet point is a unified energy source of all things, known as spirit. I think it's interesting to note that the word spirit means breath. Also, uh, having lived in Hawaii for five years, I can tell you, aloha means the breath of God. Aloha is much more than hello, goodbye, I love you, um, or thank you. It's everything, aloha. You notice, perhaps when I end this class, I say, Namaste, Aloha, Salam. I could add Shalom, which is really Salam. And again, those words are rich in their connotations and the deep meaning. Even in the uh, Judeo-Christian, the Hebrew Bible, used by Jews and Christians, the so-called Old Testament, it says in Genesis, in the beginning was the word. Well, the word, you have to breathe to speak a word, right? So the first step of manifestation is to speak your, your affirmation. But there's breath behind that. So spirit, to the ancients around the world, the shamans of all cultures, they'd never met each other, they didn't know each other, couldn't hop on an airplane 10,000 years ago, yet they all came up with pretty much the same sense that there is a unified energy. This is why many people think that the 
monotheistic impression that we see on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, or, or there have even been sculptures made of God the Father. And is this not blasphemy? Is this not idolatry? Is this not a graven image to visualize the divine source of all things, the creator, the absolute, as a human being on the cloud very far away? It leads to a feeling of abandonment often, or alienation at the very least, of separation and a concern about whether I'm good enough. My goodness. Am I adequate? How, how many of our fears are rooted in inadequacy? Not that we know that we're inadequate, but we get a lot of messages from organized religion that we're made in the image of that which is divine, and yet we're very, very bad. We're sinners. You're born a sinner. It's not your fault. But it's still your responsibility to redeem your evil nature, and here are the rules, here are the laws, here's how you do it. Well, maybe so, maybe not. But everybody seems to agree that behind the veil, so to speak, beyond material stuff, you know, physical, dense, solid, liquid gases, is some sort of energy. And Einstein put the equal sign between energy and matter and said, all that you see is a form of energy. It's just condensed. It's uh, energy that is... Uh, at its lowest vibration, and it congeals or uh, condenses. That's a great word. In alchemy, they talk about the three steps of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation. That's an interesting cycle to, to ponder, isn't it? I don't want to get too far afield, but evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Maybe that applies not only to water, but a process by which spirit, the life force, the ki, the chi, the kundalini, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, condenses and then precipitates into physical form. So here's a grand consensus that ultimately everything is spiritual and that this is a unified energy that is the source of all things. Ultimately eternal, infinite, unchanging, and self-shining. This comes out of Eastern philosophy more than monotheism. And to be clear, monotheism is Abrahamic religion, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But the Eastern wisdom says if something is real, in order for anything to be ultimately real, it must be eternal, infinite, unchanging, and self-shining. We know the physical world, the physical world, the world of appearance, the world of form, has none of these qualities. The law of impermanence rules in physical dents. Everything changes. Not only does it change, not only is the world in constant flux, but it decays, it erodes, it peters out, it run, runs out of steam. <laughs> it rots, it decays, it rusts, it corrodes, it goes away. 
I had a major revelation when I was a young man, and actually I was in therapy. I was in my late 20s, and I was doing therapy to try to untangle the dysfunctional childhood that I had experienced. And at one point, I heard my mother's voice in my head saying, Michael, if you take care of this, it'll last forever. And I know she was well-intentioned, but I had to come to terms with the fact that that's not true. Because I really tried to take care of things. <laughs> I tried to, you know, cl clean the house. I tried to keep the car washed. I tried to, you know, do the gardening and make things look nice for me and other people. I tried to care for my possessions, but just like the battery runs out, sooner or later something breaks. Then you learn as you get even older that that's sort of intended, that the manufacturers of objects that we long for, that we desire, uh, build this obsolescence in deliberately. So see how far you can go without upgrading the operating system on your computer. And <laughs> you'll find out that uh, sooner or later, you got to upgrade the operating system, and sooner or later, you got to buy a new computer. And, and even if your uh, cell phone works fine, sooner or later, you got to upgrade it. And, uh, oh, there's a new model of AirPods. I got to get that for no reason. We're going to do some classes on the desire nature and the fact that it's never fulfilled. If you stay tuned for that, I promise. So, very important to accept, especially since we are bombarded daily with commercials and advertising that uh, emphasize the fact that you can actually own something, that you can acquire it and possess it. And it's really not true. Everything is on loan from the universe. That brand new car you spent thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 on. I don't care if you wash it every week and wax it every month, no matter how conscientious you are, that car, like the house you live in and the tallest skyscrapers in the world, will eventually be raised to the ground and end up in the landfill, just as the form that we inhabit, our own physical bodies, must return to the clay of the earth. And we're in denial about that. And we call that reality. Physical dense is not reality according to this definition. It's not eternal. It's not infinite. It's not unchanging. And what is this self shining? What does that mean? It's the radiance of divinity. It's this miraculous, un I'll even say unreasonable concept, a kind of a violation of physics. Just as the perpetual motion machine would be a violation of physics, there can be no perpetual motion in the physical dense world. But the rishis and the sages, the avatars and the prophets say, yeah, but beyond this veil of objectivity in solid form is a radiance such that the absolute can create the relative the creator can create its creation without being diminished or even changed. 
That's what self-shining refers to. That the one creates the many, energy creates mass without being diminished or consumed. And even in the physical world, the laws of physical science say, yeah, everything erodes, decays, rots, eventually goes away. But energy cannot be created or destroyed. It's the invisible and unseen that is <laughs> truly substantial. Isn't that remarkable? It's the invisible and unseen. It's energy that is the substantial side of the equation, and the material form is impermanent. All right, let's continue on the sentence. In fact, let me get a running start. This first bullet point that uh, reality uh, includes, certainly the wisdom traditions include, a unified energy source of all things, so-called spirit, that is ultimately eternal, infinite, unchanging, and self-shining, yet which is both imminent and transcendent. Free of form, above, transcending, rising above. Free of form. So what does it mean that spirit is imminent and transcendent? It means the energy that is this life force, this Holy Spirit, is both indwelling but not limited to within. It's as if everything is in us. I'll say it this way, the one is in everything, but the transcendent is everything is in the one and more. It's a little cryptic, but it merits some reflection. The one life, divinity, the creator, the absolute, is in every seemingly separated thing, and, that's imminent, and every seemingly separated form is in the one. And yet the one is not limited to that. So there's more imminent and transcendent. And a couple of months ago when we touched on this, I told you it's the definition of panentheism. Wonderful term. Learn panentheism. It is not pantheism. Pantheism is half of the equation, that God is nature, that divinity, spirit, is in everything, right? So the snake is holy, it's not evil, and um, the cockroach is just as sacred as the noble beasts, the lion or the eagle, and that divinity is in the rivers and the mountains and the sky and the air that we breathe and Every scintilla, every cell in your body is imbued with this energy. How could it? <laughs> it's all inclusive. In other words, everything is sacred. Everything is sacred in the wisdom traditions. You won't find that in organized religion, regardless of the religion. Organized religion, all religions seem to be based on an idea of good and evil. It's very binary. And this is not to deny the existence of so-called evil, which is the word live backward. Very strange. Don't know if that's a coincidence or not. It's just that a metaphysician or a student of the wisdom is more likely to see evil not as an opposing force, but as the absence of good. Have you ever considered that? Like light and shadow. You would say, well, in terms of the language and the way we use language, 
That's an example of opposites. Light and shadow, or hot and cold. They're opposites, right? So they must be opposing forces. Well, is dark, ask yourself, is darkness a force? Is cold a force? You might say, yeah, I remember once when it was very cold and very dark, and uh, yeah, it felt very scary. I felt the presence of evil in the darkness, and I was shivering. Of course, they're forces. No, they're not forces. Light is a force because it... <laughs> Light has a speed. Does darkness have a speed? Well, of course not. Darkness doesn't proceed at a given speed. Light also has a source. We can find the source of the light. Is it the sun? Is it the moon? A lamp? A fire? A candle? What's the source of darkness? Whoa. Wait a minute. Darkness has no source. It just is. It just is what? The absence of light. So light's real, darkness is the absence of that energy. Same thing with hot and cold. I remember, I go back to my mom again. Uh, she used to say, we lived in Michigan, got cold as hell. Did you see uh, Buffalo, New York got seven feet of snow? Uh, <laughs> my God, seven feet, can you imagine? Well, having grown up in Michigan, right on the lake, we have that same lake effect as Buffalo and southwestern Michigan, where I grew up. And we had a lot of snow, and it got cold in the winter. And often my mother would say to me, Michael, because I'd dilly-dally, I'd come in the door and then tape my boots off. And, Close the door. You're letting the cold in. And I think I was probably in junior high in the science class one day when they figured, well, I realized I understand what my mom is saying, but again, she's got it backwards. I was letting the heat out. I wasn't letting the cold in. I was letting the heat out. How does a refrigerator make it cold? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? What does a refrigerator do to make it cold inside? It doesn't generate cold. It just pumps out the heat, and what's left is the absence of heat. So if darkness is the absence of light, and cold is the absence of heat, doesn't it make sense that evil is the absence of good and not a force that struggles? I think we've been misled by ancients, Bronze Age philosophies, thousands of years old, where they just didn't understand these things. So we have to update our philosophies and our desires to understand the world, not only physically, but metaphysically as we become wiser about such things. Evil definitely exists. There's no question. <laughs> I don't think I'd get an argument from any of you about that. There is evil in the world, but it is not a force. It is the absence of love and light and wisdom and truth and goodness and beauty. So one of the most powerful ways to fight evil is to redeem it with love. You don't extinguish it. You don't kill evil. You don't conquer it. You don't defeat it. You embrace it, and it ceases to be. You confront it. You send love and compassion 
and gratitude. Thanksgiving week, we did that meditation on gratitude. And evil cannot stand in the presence of that. <laughs> it's sort of like the allegory of the, uh, the crucifix and the, uh, the vampire. Right? That evil cannot exist in the presence of the light that uh, Christ brought as his wisdom. All right. And then there's an M dash, and the sentence continues. The one in the many, Young's collective unconscious, panentheism, and then a couple of other words we haven't talked much about, which is panpsychism and monism. See, we're going to do it again. We're going to spend a whole class on one paragraph. <laughs> panpsychism. You can Google this. You can look it up in the dictionary, just like panentheism. Distinguish panentheism from pantheism. Panpsychism and monism are very closely related. And somebody who was really, really good at philosophy and, and the wisdom traditions, much better than me, could tell you exactly how these differ. My point of view, my mission really is to break a lot of this stuff down so it's more accessible. And they overlap to such a large degree that I'm not going to focus on what distinguishes uh, or separates these, these concepts. The old wisdom phrase of the one in the many. Uh, Jung's collective unconscious, above and free of form, the idea that we're all plugged in, we're all connected on some level. How else do you explain uh, telepathy and remote viewing and clairvoyance and precognition and synchronicities, uh, which is a Jungian term, but through the idea that we're all plugged into the same terminal or switchboard on some level, and that that group, that collective unconscious, stands between the one and the many, between the divine and its uh, manifestation between creator and creation is this collective, the one, the group, and the many. Souls are never alone. Only human beings are alone. Souls are, are in, in ashrams or groups. Remember the Led Zeppelin album, Houses of the Holy? That's what, <laughs> that's, what that's a reference to, the ashrams in which the soul is said to live. So you have a family of souls. Also, when you hear accounts of people reincarnating with the same individual. Or uh, just if you've ever had the experience of meeting someone and feeling like you, you know them, you recognize them. It's an uncanny feeling of, why, why, have I met you someplace? <laughs> no. Well, it sure feels like it. So maybe you were lovers, uh, partners in one lifetime, your brother and sister in another lifetime. You're a boss and an employee in another lifetime. Just working it out. You share an ashram. Your souls are part of a, a group. The one, the group, and the many. But to get back to panpsychism, this is the idea that there is a universal mind that is shared by each and every manifestation of that one life, that one thing, that everything has a mind, that on some level it thinks and it feels. And I don't have the time today to get into it, but if you go way back in the, well, not that far back, maybe uh, eight months or so, 
in my YouTube channel, Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. You'll see a radio interview that I did. It's posted right there in the same channel with a fellow named, uh, what was it, Stuart, was it Hoffman or Goldman, something like that, spacing on in his name right now. But he is a medical doctor, an anesthesiologist, and chairman of the Department of Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And they're doing research on the consciousness of plants, in particular the Venus flytrap and its level of awareness, the degree to which a Venus flytrap is conscious, sitting there with its mouth wide open, waiting for a housefly or a mosquito or a gnat to come into its lair, and then, bang, it shuts, and it's a carnivore. It's a plant that's a carnivore. It eats critters. (laughs) How does it know? And he said, a plant is conscious. Even slime mold is conscious. I have a section in my book, Fearless Intelligence, where I talk about the research with slime mold. These are single-celled, tiny little one-celled creatures. Obviously, with no brain, no nervous system, no nerves, no nothing, just a little teeny tiny packet of protoplasm. But they are aware, they're conscious, and they have been shown I even saw a YouTube video of this, a time-lapse photo of slime mold learning to solve the shortest path to food problem in a microscopic maze. And the slime mold learned the shortest path through the maze to get to the food and passed that knowledge on to its offspring. And this experiment has been repeated and repeated. And what this uh, doctor told me was that their research shows that a a single-celled animal, like an amoeba, paramecium, the slime mold, very much like a plant, the vegetable kingdom, is conscious maybe two frames per minute. You know how a movie runs 24 frames per second? Well, imagine taking one of those frames out. That represents one twenty-fourth of a second. Well, we're conscious at a level of millions or billions of frames per second. So we don't see it as a series of snapshots, just like a movie. 24 frames a second is sufficient to make it look smooth. And we call film movies because people move. (laughs) Well, imagine that kind of streaming of consciousness, a series of very rapid snapshots of awareness that in humans, again, are millions or billions of times per second, but a plant or a little single-celled creature, it may be one or two frames per minute, not per second, but per minute. It's aware of its environment on a much lower level. I think that's fascinating. But panpsychism is a term for everything has a mind, some aspect of mind. And monism is distinguished from monotheism, again, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Mono means one, obviously, so the monotheistic idea is there's one creator, one God, that is separate from its creation, living outside very far away, 
accessible only by prayer, whereas monism says, no, it's all one thing, one life. There is no separation. Think about it. Everything is connected to everything. So all of the Eastern philosophies and religions are monistic rather than monotheistic. <laughs>